Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we pass judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France, from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme, and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. Oh, and hello, I am Fry. And I'm Bree from Pontifax, a papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And we're here too. Yay! Yay! Our first first ever guests on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, we're the first. We're so honored. Yeah. That's why we didn't know how to do anything. Yeah. (laughs) Look, I've I've taught several people how to do this, so. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, we're having a little um, holiday shindig between two (laughs) Rexipods, because this is also our Christmas episode. Um, so we're just going to gather around the altar with our chalices full of eggnog, um, and tell some stories from Christianity's gruesome, horrible past. (laughs) So gruesome. (laughs) It really is. So yeah, we're going to be talking about, or I guess Brie will mostly be talking because I, (laughs) her research is just so far above and beyond mine, but, uh, we'll be talking about saints who have been significant throughout both of our podcasts, but we haven't really gotten the chance to talk about them too much. So Brie and Fry, you talked a lot, a lot about some popes who are saints. We have a lot of popes who are saints. We come across a lot of saints because they're all saints because of popes. And then we also tend to do quite a lot of unique and individual saint stories on our Patreon as well, which gets really wild sometimes. <laughs> Yes, and I just I just joined your Patreon, so I'm not caught up on all of the Patreons, but I'm looking forward to. I listened to your Cephalophores episode. Ah, so. well, that's perfect for today. Yeah, because <laughs> one of our saints is a Cephalophore, which is a saint that who carries their head. Yes, um, their decapitated head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is different from um, their night skin. <laughs> it is different from their night skin. Only St. Bartholomew has a night skin, though. What's a night skin? St. Bartholomew was flayed alive, and so in all of the depictions of him in a lot of popular art, especially in the Renaissance, he's pictured carrying his own skin. Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought well, that's um, what it the, meant when you said that. I was like, in the, he was carrying his skin. The Last Judgment. <laughs> yes, the last judgment in The Last Judgment. Yeah. He is definitely carrying his skin. <laughs> Eliza and I saw that together. It was we magical. did. Oh, no. Well, you probably wouldn't have noticed it because there was a lot of other stuff going on in that room. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the yeah, Sistine they- Chapel, it's the one with the crazy ceiling in the Vatican. Oh, yeah. I, thought, I was like, what um, are you talking about? But on the back wall, there's a St. Saint Bartholomew's. Um, oh, I was more interested in the skin. map hole in the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> the Vatican was definitely like sensory overload. It really is. And I remember the first time that I visited the Vatican and there was a room full of tapestries all depicting the biblical story of the murdering of the first sons. So it was just an entire room full of tapestries of babies being murdered. So <laughs> lovely. It can be it can definitely be an experience. Oh, I forgot he was carrying I did his s- night skin on this picture. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last judgment I've sent in here, and he's some he's right. 
in the middle and carrying his skin, but also wearing yeah. skin. So night skin. But isn't isn't that meant to be a self portrait of Michelangelo? Yes, like yes, he one painted of them his is. face on the skin body. Yes, <laughs> yeah, just just the night skin. That's amazing. <laughs> it's what he Shows goes you, like, out in it... to the clubs at night in his night skin. <laughs> yeah, Michelangelo was just such an emo. <laughs> he was, and he really, really, really hated all of the popes that he worked for. So he left mm. lots of secret messages in these paintings. <laughs> okay, so we should probably start talking about saints, uh, or, or something. Oh, also, I should probably mention, like, where our podcasts are weirdly like we weirdly like synced up at this moment. Yes, because very both, lined up. Yeah, because we're both in the Carolingian period. We literally just overtook you guys. In our Charles mm. the Bald episode, because you guys got a bit distracted by Pope Joan and did <laughs> yes, three episodes moving. on her. Surprise moving. <laughs> and a lot yeah, of bamboozling of Fry yeah. that she's still very salty about. I was so mad. <laughs> I thought we were You friends. bamboozled me as well. I went into that episode having no idea what was, what was about to happen. Oh, that, that pleases me so much. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even yell. I was just like, What? that was my reaction i was just like on the bus and i just like i was like trying not to yell like (laughs) what secret women (laughs) well there's lots of women history who dress off as men there are a lot yeah yeah so you've chosen Um, some good saints for us to talk about that all have interesting ties to to france and so it's a perfect crossover for us to talk about these particular people do we want yeah. to jump into it yeah let's get mm. into it so i I, sh- I should first say who who we're going to talk about so we're going to start with um petronilla mm-hmm. the the daughter of peter who's the earliest france saint unless you count the archangel michael who apparently is a patron saint <laughs> of france it's probably and, look um, michael is everywhere yeah, yeah michael's like everything i was like i was like we don't have time for michael we can't talk about michael <laughs> And then we've got Dennis, or Denis, <laughs> um, Saint-Denis, uh, or Dionysius, I guess. Uh, yes. Then we've got Martin, who I think Brie is mostly going to talk about, but I'm going to like interject with some <laughs> random facts that I have as well. And then I'll take over and talk about uh, Remy, who we've come across a couple times, and mm. also Radigund, mm. who we've also come across um radigand is such a great name i know both yeah. of those are both of those are disney mouse names aren't they <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you're thinking of radigan but yes very close <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so yeah remy's remy's the rat man and radigan's the the rad lady <laughs> yeah okay so without further ado uh take it away brie petronilla sure same petronilla I, I can do that because we, we also have come across Petronilla in relation to the Carolingians. So this is a perfect place to start because Petronilla is a first century saint or potentially third century. She is a virgin martyr with the feast day of May 31st. And she is the patron saint of French kings, the Dauphin, and treaties between the Frankish Empire and the papacy. Now, as you said, she is traditionally identified as the daughter of St. Peter, as stipulated in the Golden Legend and the 6th Century Tombs of Martyrs by Abbot John. 
And this is generally sort of assumed because of the name similarity. You know, yeah, Petronilla. like Peter's the rock and Petronilla's the little rock girl. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we do know, at least from some Gnostic Apocrypha, that there is mention that Peter did have a daughter and a wife. So it is possible, although, of course, in any of the sources that are not apocryphal, they are not named or really mentioned very much at all. The other potential is that she might have been like a spiritual daughter, if you will, Mm. which means that she was a convert of Peter, which feels lame because he was converting everybody. (laughs) But I do want to say, if Peter was her father, he was awful to her. (laughs) And this makes him even more of a douche than we covered in our very first episode. So, yeah, Fry in was, particular. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll never hate him as much as Paul, but <laughs> well, he's rude. <laughs> let's see how you feel after this, because apparently Petronilla was extremely beautiful, but she also suffered from some type of debilitating illness, like a fever or a palsy. And Peter knew this and knew he could cure her, but decided to not cure her except for when it was convenient for him until she was, quote unquote, perfected by God. Oh, no. (laughs) I have an account from the Golden Legend for you. (laughs) Quote, she was very beautiful and therefore by her father's will, she suffered continually from fever. The disciples were at table one day with Peter, and Titus said to him, You have cured all sorts of illnesses. Why do you leave Petronilla so sick? Because it's for her own good, Peter replied. (laughs) But, lest it be thought that I said it was because it was impossible for me to cure her, he turned and said to her, Get up right away, Petronilla, and wait on us. When all had been served, however, yeah, Hey, I'll cure you so you can serve us. What, and then I'll cure me? Yeah. So, when all had been served, however, Peter said, Now, Petronilla, back to bed. She promptly returned to bed, and the fever came back as before. But when she began to be perfect in the love of God, he cured her perfectly. So, she had to prove herself as perfect to her father, but he would cure her when it suited him. So perfect means serving him. Yeah. It's it's just not very nice. Mm. And so because of her beauty, there was also a pagan king or a count called Flaccus who wished to marry her, presumably after the death of Peter when, you know, she was no longer suffering from palsy and he wasn't there being like, for her own good, she has to be sick. And when he proposed marriage to her very forcefully... She decided instead to go on an extreme fast or hunger strike, which led to her death. Well, sometimes you do that. We're going to have a lot of parallels with Radagund. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. This this whole virgin martyr thing is very, very popular. Weird starvation stuff and just men being horrible to them at every turn. Yeah, and especially like, I would rather die than marry you. And, And they often get called on that bluff. Now, unfortunately, Flaccus was so angry by the fact that she had starved herself to death rather than marry him, he tried to force her serving women to marry him through violence, 
which led to a series of martyrdoms as well. Hmm. So, quote, seeing that he had been deceived, he turned to Felicula, one of Petronilla's companions, and ordered her either to marry him or to sacrifice to the idols. She refused to do either, and the prefect kept her in jail for seven days without food or drink, then tortured her on the rack, put her to death, and threw her body into the sewer. Aww. Yeah, not so nice. Then, St. Nicodemus recovered the body and buried it, and for this, Placus had Nicodemus summoned before the judge, and when he refused to sacrifice, he was beaten with leaden rods and killed. This is no. like peak per- persecution, Roman persecution time, isn't it? No Disney fairy tale endings for them. No, no, I mean, they do get to be saints, at least. They are all, all three, Follicula, uh, Nicodemus, and Petronella get canonized. They get to be now, Disney re- princesses in heaven. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the daughter of St. Peter in heaven. It's a pretty high honor. And this is why we have a connection to St. Petronilla, to the Frankish kings, because Charlemagne and Carloman associated themselves with St. Peter through their relationship, of course, with Pope Hadrian. And they often called oh. themselves his son, the sons of St. Peter. So they were symbolically adopted into the apostolic succession in that way. And so they turned to their symbolic sister. And the chapel of St. Patronella in Old St. Peter's to become the burial place for French kings. So very quickly after this, she becomes the patroness of French kings and treaties between the papacy and Frankish emperors, which, of course, are at their absolute pinnacle at the point of Charlemagne. Yeah. Okay, so that's how that happened. Yeah, it's just, you know, every time that they would have a treaty signed, they would go and either lay it upon the tomb of St. Peter or bring it to the chapel of St. Petronilla. Hmm. She is also considered the patroness of dauphins in France due to an alleged dolphin being found on her sarcophagus. <laughs> so they're just like, hey, there's a dolphin carved here. That definitely means that she's also supposed to be the patron saint of the young princes. So. <laughs> There's that. It's just the prince, like, graffitiing it and then being like, hey. <laughs> Look, why else would a first century Roman woman's tomb have a dolphin on it? It's just, it's <laughs> not in place at all. Yeah, it's weird. Now, that this chapel initially was built in the fourth century to celebrate the saint. It encouraged her cult following, but later her relics were translated to St. Peter's in the papacy of Gregory III into what became the chapel of St. Petronilla in Old St. Peter's. But this chapel was, of course, destroyed for new St. Peter's. Yeah. <laughs> every time. Yeah, every, every time. Every time. I don't know how much Pontifex you've listened to, Eliza, but literally in every second <laughs> episode, we, we have to go over the fact that Old St. Peter's was destroyed so we don't have the remains... Yeah, they just decided to knock down the graves of popes. So rude. Hmm. I can't wait till we get to that guy. I'm going to rate him (laughs) so poorly. (laughs) For destroying all of the tombs? You know what? That's fair. He probably deserves it. (laughs) However, there is still an altar to St. Petronilla in New St. Peter's, and Hmm. it was ironically decorated by Michelangelo. Ah, Did he put dolphins on it? Uh, there should be, be some dolphins. dolphins. If not, then what's the point? <laughs> but that was on her tomb. 
Maybe Michelangelo doesn't know what a dolphin looks like. Yeah. I mean, none of them know what dolphin... If you look at the coat of arms of the Dauphin, it's like, what even is this creature? (laughs) Like, it's just just like a a dolphin, but it has like frills on it. And it's like, what... (laughs) Well, and that's why you have to wonder about this tomb, right? What what the heck was actually on this tomb that was allegedly a dolphin? Did anybody just look at it and go, that's a dolphin, and have no idea what a dolphin is? Yeah. And then a smarter person's like, no, it's a trout. <laughs> and like, shh, don't upset the dauphin. Someone time traveled and put a bunch of Lisa Frank art on her tomb. <laughs> Yeah. You know what? St. Petronilla would enjoy Lisa Frank. She was bedridden most of the time. She would love bedazzled notebooks full of like very bright colors <laughs> and weird animals. Yeah. So that's St. Petronilla. So I guess that brings us to Saint Denis, the patron saint of Paris. Yeah. St. Denis. This one's going to be fun because we have, we have done an episode on cephalophores and... Yeah. It was on Patreon, and Fry was not with me for it, so she hasn't heard. She heard the edit, I suppose, but we haven't actually been able to talk about cephalophores together. So, Saint Denis was born in the early third century, and as you said in the intro, he's often called Dionysius in Gregory of Tours and Alban Butler's editions of Lives of the Saints. The problem with that is there's also another Dionysius who is a saint at this time, and so the stories get very, very meshed and confused. Mm. You have to actually suss out who the real Saint-Denis is. His feast date was October 9th, and like I said, he's the patron saint of Paris, but he's also the patron saint against frenzy and for possessed people. These are... are Big hitters in the Catholic Church. Denis was a member of the Roman Church and was consecrated by Fry's favorite, Pope Fabian, as bishop, and was sent to Gaul with six others to evangelize and establish the Gallic Church. And Denis was the best at this. He was, like, super effective and super compelling, and people were inspired by him everywhere they went. And so as he's converting people, he actually makes it the furthest into Gaul of all six of the missionaries and establishes a diocese at what is now Paris. Yay! (laughs) A saint saint who actually went there. Uh, But not for long. And this, this doesn't really go well for him because he's almost immediately arrested by imperial authorities, along with two of his companions, Rusticus and Eleutherius. And just like peak persecution times, they are made or demanded to recant their faith, which they refuse to do. So they're thrown into prison and tortured. This is that gruesome Christianity. Yay. (laughs) And we get to have some really detailed sort of look at what that torture was like in the Golden Legends, which says that the emperor sent the provost Fasenius to Rome to Paris against the Christian men and found there the blessed Denis praying and made him to cruelly be beaten, bespit, and despised, fast to be bound with Rusticus and Eleutherius and to be brought before him. The saints were beaten cruelly of twelve knights and were straightly bounden with chains of iron and put in prison. The day following, Denis was laid upon a gridiron and stretched all naked upon the coals of fire. Therefore he sang to our Lord, saying, Lord, thy word is vehemently fiery, and thy servant is embraced in the love thereof. Oh, that, uh... 
<laughs> After that, he was put among cruel beasts, which were excited by great hunger and famine by long fasting. And as soon as they came running upon him, he made the sign of the cross against them. And anon, they were made most meek and tame. Oh, oh classic. After- Damn, I thought he was going to be Aiden. Controlling animals is a thing that the saints really like to do. <laughs> and after that, he was cast into a furnace of fire. And the fire anon quenched, and he had neither pain nor harm. And after that, he was put on a cross, and thereon he was long tormented. And after that, he was taken down and put in a dark prison oh with his God, fellows and many other Christian men. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I feel like him stopping the tortures is just kind of prolonging them. You know? It really is. <laughs> Why are they just not beheading him? It'd be so much easier. You know he would not come back. Oh, Eliza, you're right on the money because they get really, really sick of him and behead him. <laughs> okay, if he comes back, I'll be like, no. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> this is where the Golden Legend gets to take over <laughs> and make him Cephalophor, the head carrier. So, again, these are the saints who are usually martyred by beheading but then they go on to miraculously do things like walk around and talk so and travel. Yes, a headless zombie. So he's carrying his head around. <laughs> Quoting from the Golden Legend. After this, they were presented to the judge and were put again to new torments. Then he did do smite off the heads of their three fellows. That is to say, Denis, Rusticus, and Eleutherius in confessing the name of the Holy Trinity. And this was done by the Temple of Mercury, where they were beheaded with three axes. And anon, the body of St. Denis raised himself up and bore his head between his arms, as the angel led him two leagues from the place, which is said on the Hill of Martyrs, unto the place where he now resteth, by his election and by the purveyance of God. So he's decapitated. Walks to a he hill gets and up. <laughs> Uh, walks six miles <laughs> with like his decapitated chicken. head. <laughs> he's like that chicken. Is this like a justification for the fact that the church is like a bit far outside the city? So like, yes. oh, but he walked <laughs> and then decided to die on the outside hill. the city. Yeah. Well, he had a final sermon to give. Ben. He had to <laughs> I'm sorry. the whole time. <laughs> The whole time he is watching, walking his six miles, he is preaching a sermon of repentance the whole way. He's just holding up his head like a... Non-vocal cords. He's just holding it up. He's holding it up like a boombox so that everyone can (laughs) There are quite a lot of photos where he is sort of doing... Or paintings where he is sort of doing that boombox holding (laughs) of his head thing. So, Yeah. He reached the spot where the Basilica of Saint-Denis now stands and then died. So, yeah, that's that's exactly what happened. And this is also why he becomes such a legendary saint, because it's so miraculous to have a cephalophore. And he's one of the most important (laughs) French saints. And he's now dead, dead? He's now dead, dead. He kind kind of gave up the ghost there. He's like, six miles is enough. It's too much exercise. That being said, he, his tomb is is known to be quite a healing tomb. He he's apparently really good at at dealing with frenzy and possession, so he's still very active. So he's considered one of the fourteen holy helpers, which is a group of like special saints that are more efficacious 
at interceding. So if I get possessed, I know who to pray to. Yeah, exactly. He'll he'll just <laughs> stand right up and bring his head to you, and you I'll guys be can have a chat. Now he also has a, a couple connections to the Frankish emperors. So in 644, Dagobert was particularly yes. adherent. <laughs> and um, apparently it, he appears with St. Denis in a later vision where Dagobert's soul is being judged and the saints are judging Dagobert for stripping churches. And the wicked angels want to carry his soul away to punishment, but Saint Denis stood by and intervenes and frees and and liberates Dagobert's soul. Yay! <laughs> and, and then he's like, "Put put your trousers the right way around." <laughs> I don't know if you guys will get that joke, but <laughs> so in eight fifteen, Louis the Pious was presented writings of Saint Denis by ambassadors of Emperor Michael, and they were translated from Greek into Latin for him to read. And by coincidence, 19 ill people were cured at the Church of Saint-Denis on that same night that the documents arrived. Oh, what a coincidence. (laughs) Yeah, what a coincidence. Yep. And most famously, Clovis uh, uncovered the body of Saint-Denis and apparently broke off an arm and stole it as a relic. And the quote following this is only, in no time... He lost his mind. Yep. <laughs> Remember we had a relic come to my school once? One of the same. You had a relic that came to your school? Yeah. Did it make you make you uh, go a little wild? Uh, <laughs> was your mind? No, um, I think it was like, I don't remember what it was saying. I think it was like a finger of a saint or something. Couldn't say I remember well. um, when the arm of St. Francis Xavier was touring Canada. I think it was that, And I missed it. Ah, well, there you go. I went to a religious Catholic school, so that's why. Perfect. And this one, that one is particularly um, active, because when it was in Alberta, the fingers apparently bent, and everyone lost their minds. Quite literally lost their minds. (laughs) Terrifying. Something. At least it was the two last fingers, so we were getting a benediction, apparently, here in Canada. You weren't getting, like, the the finger or... No, <laughs> it wasn't quite the middle finger. So that's that's Saint Denis. Saint Denis. Ooh. So healing and head stuff and exorcism. <laughs> Against <Yeah>. frenzy. <laughs> and just not dying pages. Yeah, not dying for a long time. Not Walking dying. that I can just imagine it kinda like um good omens where there's a scene where um, Crowley's in the bar of the holy water like washing. And I'm just imagining that for him, though, in the furnace. And just be like, la di da di da oh, it's nice and warm, not too hot, nice little sauna. <laughs> That's why they got frustrated and needed to cut his head off. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then he's like, la di da di da here's my head. <laughs> and then he just wanders, just wanders yeah, away. He gets to the top of the hill and is like, oh, I'm tired, just curls up. This looks like a good, as good a spot as any. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Well, it is a good hill because it's now Montmartre, which is the highest hill in Paris. Uh-huh. He he did choose a good spot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good area. And it's Montmartre is like the artistic center of Paris as well, mm-hmm. isn't it? So a yes. lot of cra- a lot of crazy people there <laughs> <laughs> walking around without their heads, though. Yeah, yeah. 
He's just the OG crazy man there. <laughs> and everyone is trying to live up to his legacy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. That, so that brings us to... Martin. Go ahead. St. Martin. Yeah. Yeah. This brings us to St. Martin, our heavy hitter. He is, he is definitely... Boombox head? <laughs> heavier than Boombox head, because he gets to be... He's the most recognizable saint of France. He's the patron saint of France. He He's just the big guy. And it's kind of wild. It's Yeah. And the amount of times that his abbey has come up yeah. in, in oh. the podcast. Just a lot. So many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was Gregory of so Tours' abbey. Um, mm-hmm. So he mentions Martin a lot. Like, yep. It's like never <laughs> whenever. <end. laughs> Whatever anything sentence. good happens, it's because of Martin. Yeah. I think right before we started recording, I sent you a message that said, Gregory of Tours just wants everything ever to be yeah. credited to St. Martin. So. Yeah. yeah. And it's really his fault that St. Martin is the most popular saint. Actually, maybe we should, we should talk about that first, yeah. because the popularization, the promotion of St. Martin as a recognizable symbol of France and Tours as a place of pilgrimage, all credits back to Gregory of Tours. Of course. Which is our sixth century bishop of Tours and a very useful source for Ben and I. Yep, definitely. Gregory considered himself the foster son of Martin. He saw Martin as like his personal patron saint, and he has his own miracle story with St. Martin. So... In 563, he went on a very difficult and very challenging pilgrimage to Martin's tomb where he was cured of his own serious illness. There seems to be debate about <laughs> whether it was like some sort of fever or seizures or blindness, but it's probably the fever very... of talking too much about Martin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you would think because it doesn't get any better for him. After that, he wrote four <laughs> books on the miracles of St. Martin and he uses St. Martin as, like, the call to authority for everything. Yeah, it's just the cudgel that he beats well, everyone like, with. Well, St. Like, Martin said that, we should do this. Yeah, or like, or like, and the king didn't do this because he was afraid if he did this, St. Martin would strike him down or something. Um, it rained today through the blessing of St. Martin. Yeah. Like, it's quite literally everything. Literally. To the point where in, in his own century, St. Martin's tomb was, like, the center for which, like, the crippled, the sick... The possessed, uh, any person who was ill or or facing some sort of malady would just come to tour specifically for St. Martin. So. Yeah. And he was the bishop. So he was like the head of marketing for. Yes. Tour. <laughs> <laughs> Big <laughs> time. <laughs> yeah. So that's Gregory and his sort of promotion of Martin. But Martin himself was the third bishop of tour. His feast day is November 11th. He is the patron saint of France, but also against poverty or alcoholism. He's the patron saint of beggars, and he has about 30 other places that he's the patron saint for. He was born in 316 in Sabaria in Pannonia, which is sort of modern-day Hungary, Austria, Croatia, and raised in Pavia in Italy. Hmm. And he absolutely wanted a religious life at first. But given this new imperial decree that ordered sons to replace veteran fathers, he was essentially forced into the army at a very young age. Oh, he had to, he had to Mulan. 
He had he had to Mulan exactly. But he was only about ten or twelve at this time. And at first, he tried to run to a church, and he was like, "Please take me in as a catechumen so that I can just not, not go to the military service." Yeah, but that didn't work for him. So he does end up serving in the Roman cavalry under all of the emperors, roughly from Constantine to Julian. So it's quite a long time. Now, his most famous act is an act of generosity that turns into a vision. And through the Golden Legend account, I will read it to you. Once in the wintertime, he was passing through the city gate of Amiens, where a poor man, almost naked, confronted him. No one had given him alms, and Martin understood that this man had been kept for him. So he drew his sword and cut the cloak he was wearing into two halves, giving one half to the beggar and wrapping himself in the other. The following night, he had a vision of Christ wearing the part of his cloak, with which he had covered the beggar, and heard Christ say to the angels who surrounded him, Martin, while still a catechumen, gave this to cover me. The holy man saw this not as a reason for pride, but as evidence of God's kindness, and had himself baptized at the age of 18. <laughs> so, okay, so he got his cloak, his perfectly fine cloak, and then just turned it into two bad... Shitty cloaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> two shawls. And- yeah. Yeah, it's now a shawl. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually know... So, so um, I know a fact now. Um... <laughs> <laughs> the so the the cloak is like known as a capella in Latin, mm-hmm. and the, the church where the slices of cloak were kept was called the capella, which in modern French turns into chapelle, which in English is chapel, and that's mm-hmm. where we get the word chapel from. It's just a small church. Originally, it was the small church where like that the part of the cloak was kept, but now it's just like all small churches. Are chapels. Mm. So he was pretty inspired by this experience mm. and he wanted to leave military service because look, I've just had a vision of Christ. I gave Christ my cloak. <laughs> so he decides to try and get out. But Emperor Julian is having none of it. He's quite desperate for troops at the moment and he's just offered them like this huge bonus to stay on. So when Ooh, is this Martin Julian, is, is this Julian the Apostate? Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perfect, right? So Yeah, he was the he, last pagan emperor mm, for, for, you, yes. for you guys. Yeah. The, the very vehemently anti-Christian emperor. <laughs> yeah. So he was not very happy to hear that Martin, one of his great soldiers, was like, no, nah, I'm going to leave because Jesus. So he <laughs> decides to punish Martin, and he takes all of Martin's weapons away and says tomorrow you'll face the enemy unarmed sucks to be you this is what you get honestly if somebody told me because jesus was their reason not to come into work <laughs> i'd be pretty annoyed <laughs> I, just saying yeah <laughs> jesus told me to have a sleep in I, I feel like there are people who would get away with that <laughs> <laughs> so he's now going to have to face this army with no weapons and nothing to defend himself but Miraculously, the enemy surrenders the following morning, and there's no battle. And so he actually gets <laughs> to succeed in leaving the service and goes straight to Hillary, the Bishop of Poitiers, to become an acolyte. Yay! Even- now we get to talk hey. about Hillary. <laughs> yes, 
Which is a whole other thing that yeah. could take a very long time. But he's just the patron of a part of France, so we're not talking about him. Not the whole of France. <laughs> no. But even this isn't smooth for Martin, because along the way, he gets accosted by robbers who plan to kidnap and kill him. And he's like, cool, that's great. Here's my neck. And they're like, whoa, you're a little full on, sir. And as a, <laughs> as a result of their conversation with Martin, they end up converted. So he is converting even the most unsavory of people. Uh, I can't believe and- that he just was like, okay, kill me. And they're like, I love Jesus, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, do it, do it. Oh, I, sorry. No. I can also has Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Martin is like unfazed, right? These these robbers aren't anything to him. And maybe this is because when he was passing through Milan, he also met the devil. Ooh. Oh, yes, the devil. He, he met the devil, devil <laughs> yeah, quite a lot of times in his yeah. life, but this was the first time. <laughs> You know, the devil would be in France. Secret friendship, I say. The devil and Martin. You know, they do kind of have, like, sort of a frenemy relationship. Yeah. Really. It's very <laughs> strange. Especially when the devil tries to pretend to be Jesus. Which is the thing that Ooh. happens. He's like, look at me, I'm Jesus. And Martin's like, no, you're wearing purple. Jesus wouldn't do that. <laughs> Jesus can't wear purple? No. You forgot Jesus', Jesus not Jesus's least purple. favorite color is purple. Oh, how dare You're he? You're not Jesus. It's too impure. Perhaps I'm the no. devil. Ooh. You love purple. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's like the devil was but- the devil was hacking into Jesus' account, but he forgot that the security question, what is your favorite color? It's not purple. <laughs> <laughs> So he he often meets the devil and repels him in this way. Like the first time he meets the devil, the devil shows up and is trying. He's like, hey, where are you going? And and Martin is very honest with him. And the devil goes, well, hey, anywhere you go, the devil's going to fight you. And he's like, okay, I'm not afraid of that. And the devil gets upset and leaves. (laughs) Just because he's not afraid. It's like, just uh, (laughs) Yeah, just like his, his, his. Sick insult didn't work, and so he was very deflated. He's just like in a huff, and the devil just marches off, like frowning. He's like, I'm sort of being like, damn it, not again. Yeah. Comes up with a comeback like two weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> that would ex- that would explain the later visits. So anyway, he he starts to gain quite a following. He's he's quite well known as converting people as being great to fend off the devil and so he's consecrated as the bishop of Caesarea Dunham which is Tour in 371 but this was not a very popular move because many bishops of the region disapproved of Martin because he was small and unattractive oh <laughs> that's sad so, so doesn't yeah. matter about any miracles or turning away the devil Sorry, he got no, criticized he- for being small and unattractive in France. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. All right. <laughs> so at this point, it seems like Martin's a little bit offended because he's like, I don't want to deal with you. I'm going to establish a monastery outside of the city I've just been declared bishop for and live out there so I don't have to deal with your faces. <laughs> so he, he establishes the future Abbey of Marmutia. And it's two miles outside of the walls of Tours. And yes. here he lived. We, yeah, to, we, very... we mentioned it last episode because um, mm. Robert the Strong, 
was uh, made the lay abbot of Marmoutier and, and Martin of Tours at one point. And bishops were mad about it because he wasn't a priest. <laughs> was he small and ugly too? Probably. I mean, I imagine most, most of the kings of France are small and ugly, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how it was at the time of Robert the Strong, but while Martin was there, the abbey was known for very strict clerical observance. Oh, uh, yes, that something- declines. Big time. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, and this is something where we're, I'm currently dealing with in the research and where Fry and I are going to come up on the podcast is like how far clerical observance and discipline falls away. And we're going to have to deal with the whole yeah. Cluniac reform. That back. Yeah. I mean, everyone's just too freaked out about the Vikings to worry about like how many times a day <laughs> you're praying. Like, yeah. we have more important things to worry about. <laughs> It's like you can't be halfway through battle and go, wait, pause, I need to pray. Yeah, exactly. That's a good diversion strategy, though. <laughs> the pagans and Vikings would be like, what? Confuse your enemies. Yeah. But he was a very successful bishop otherwise and was great for miracles. So anybody who didn't approve of him for being small and ugly certainly noticed that he started uh, resurrecting dead people. Yep. Like there are at least another, another three classic. different accounts. Oh, so now he's a necromancer. Woo! He is a necromancer. Small and ugly and reviving dead people. <laughs> he resurrects at least three people. There is a man who died of a serious fever that he brings back. There is a man who died because he fell in a pit and comes back. And then there is a... A less savory one because there is a slave who had died from what is sort of implied as a hanging suicide or strangulation. And Martin brings him back, too. Yeah. Which is interesting, I think. Bring some uh, moral questions. Yeah. (laughs) So all people who could theoretically have been in comas. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. True. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) They're dead, Fry. They're dead, okay? (laughs) Is, sorry, yes. is, is now the is now the point where we're introducing uh, like uh, cynicism in, into this episode? <laughs> Look, we cannot have any plausible deniability. We're pretty far <laughs> in at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is what he was good at. He was good at healing people. He was famous for curing ills like lepers and fever. And he also allegedly possessed the ability to control quote inanimate, vegetable, and non-rational beings, oh. including. Fire and water. I'm not inviting like could... him to my home. Other than <laughs> dead bodies. Yeah, and the potatoes and the cucumbers are going to start talking. Yeah. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah. There's so many moments where he's like, oh, I'm going to like burn down this pagan temple. And then he realizes there's like a house next to it. So then he has to like firebend the fire to stop. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. I'm just imagining him when he's all alone because everyone's like, oh, you're ugly, so no friends. And then he just makes his little vegetables come alive and have a chat with them. (laughs) They're his friends. But, like, like a lot of his magic is just, like, correcting mistakes, like, problems that he created. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Very much so. Well, he shouldn't have set that building on fire to begin with, and then he wouldn't have to to firebend it away. (laughs) There is a tree that they cut, and he's like, "Oh no, it's gonna fall on me! Fall that way instead!" You know, it's it's you all very move. You're, you're <laughs> have to perform magic. 
like you can walk I'm away. Like, no, nope, I was here first. I'm not moving. He's very stubborn, but- short, ugly saint. <laughs> short, ugly saint. I think I have one reason you might want to invite him to your home at one point. Maybe yeah. you have a farm and maybe you have a cow and maybe a demon possesses your cow. Oh, no. Martin can handle that. Yes. <laughs> so what? What? what's the downside of having a demon cow? <laughs> yeah, how do you know if your cow's possessed? I want to know that. <laughs> Well, according to the golden legend, the possessed cow was roaring and raging and gored many people once this cow rushed in a fury at Martin and his company as they passed on the road. So, <laughs> so it's a very just a angry cow. It sounds like a bull. I was imagining like its legs turning backwards and it like walking on the ceiling. <laughs> but no, it's just an angry cow. Really? I was just, just imagining it like it's milk being a weird colour, like green. That's actually the first it, thing I thought of as well. Yeah, like maybe it's it was the literal a mad cow. Good, good milk or something. Yeah, yeah it's it's possessed, possessed milk. Well, when Martin shows up, he raises his hand and orders the cow to halt. And she does. And when she does, he sees that there's a demon riding her. So that's why she's so mad. That's why she's goring people. She's trying to get this demon off. So Martin rebukes the demon, saying, Get off her back, O evil one, and stop tormenting this harmless animal. The spirit departs immediately. The cow then fell to her knees at the bishop's feet, which is one pride to him. The cow shouldn't do that. No, that's that's bad for a cow. Yeah. That's just not a good time for a cow. But then she goes back peaceably to her herd. So if you have a demon riding your cow or possessing your cow, at least he could help you with that. Mm, true, true. <laughs> Although my favorite story about <laughs> or about St. Martin is what I like to call the tale of the fiery bum. And this is Go to do on. with a time <laughs> that Martin went to the emperor, Valentinian, about something he needed. The legend is not clear what that is. It just says, about something he needed. He needed something. <laughs> it was drugs. There's a reason but... all these people are seeing firebending and stuff. I'm just saying. True. He's not doing magic, it's just mushrooms. <laughs> He's just a really good dealer. <laughs> well, whatever he wanted, the emperor knew what he wanted, and the emperor <laughs> didn't want to give it to him. So he closes and locks the palace doors and refuses to let Martin in. So Martin, who's very angry at this point about being rejected, decides to wrap himself in sackcloth. He sprinkles ashes on his head, goes the full penitent way, denies himself food and water for a week. Then, bitten by an angel, he went to the palace and, quote, made his way to the emperor, no one interfering. Valentinian saw him coming and angry because he had been admitted, did not rise to acknowledge his presence. Ooh. Until flames burst out of the royal throne and set the imperial posterior afire. <laughs> wow. Oh, you're not going to acknowledge me, dear emperor? I will set your butt on fire. Imagine just barging in somewhere and setting someone's butt on fire. You want me to invite this man to my home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still not the biggest fan of modern. I'm not convinced. <laughs> Like, my cow can have a demon ride it all day. 
<laughs> well, is it, this Gregory? Is this Gregory of Tours story? This this one is from the Golden Legend, so it's Jacobus. Oh, okay. So, um, but it works on the Emperor because quote. At that, the emperor, though still irritated, rose to greet Martin and admitted that he had felt the power of God. He granted the bishop all that he wanted before the latter had time to ask and offered him many gifts. Just so, make, just, just so shower him with things to make him leave. Yeah, well, I mean, he felt the power of God on his backside. <laughs> I don't. Mm. I mean, if someone if someone had the power to just light my bum on fire, I'd probably give them whatever they wanted. It's probably <laughs> a good idea. To make leave. Yeah. <laughs> so at, oh, at this point, he's a very, very well-known person who's quite miraculous. And then he has the gall to predict his own death. And very accurate. <laughs> but then his death caused quite a lot of controversy, given that Bo- he died in Poitiers. And so Poitiers and Tour, his home, argued incessantly over who should have the body <laughs> of Martin. They both wanted the miraculous saint's body. And this got to the point where they were arguing so fiercely that like the body had to be put in a room and locked with guards. Until the people of Tour stole his body back secretly in the middle of the night by shuffling <laughs> out a window and putting it on a boat. So they pushed it out a window and put it on a... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I just... I know they don't have video cameras, but that's, like, the lamest heist. Well, I mean, they did get it past the guards, and they were very, very pleased. And this is, this is of course, coming from Gregory of Tours about why they have the body in Tours. So it's very, very promo-like. And I love how he refers to the people of Poitiers who no longer have the body of St. Martin, saying that they were, quote, greatly crestfallen. It's like stealing the mascot from, like, a rival college. It, yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what they did. But of course... I love it. They took it back, and they built the tomb of St. Martin, which becomes the Church of St. Martin, of course, where this yeah. becomes a site of curing the ill and lame. And mm-hmm. any person who has any type of malady it was established in the 5th century and is one of the most prominent and influential Frankish religious institutions. As you've said, everything happens there. It was even yeah. the home base for a while uh, for Alcuin, Charlemagne's advisor and biographer. Yeah, yeah. But uh, unfortunately, it was demolished in the French Revolution. So the one we currently have was rebuilt only in the 19th century. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> yeah, not so good. But ironically, oh, right after that happened, Martin actually experiences a resurgence in popularity because he becomes the patron saint of the Third Republic in France. So his cult uh. actually gets revived as a as an icon of French nationalism during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. And at the time of 1916, and historian Ernest Brehout covering the translation of Gregory of Tours' book, in France, including Alsace and Lorraine, there were 3,675 churches dedicated to St. Martin and 425 wow. villages or hamlets named after him. Okay. Oh, and we should also probably mention 
St. Martin's association with Christmas, because this ah. is a Christmas episode. Because he, so Martinmas, which is his saint day, which I think is like 11th of November, mm-hmm. um, also known as Old Halloween. Um, Old Halloween. Mar- okay, I love that. Yeah. Well, it's seen by a lot of people throughout Europe and America as well as to be like the, the start of Christmas, not Christmas, but like um, winter, basically. The start of, like, the Christmas season, I suppose. Holiday season. And there's actually um, a Czech proverb that says when Martin rides in on his white horse, and that's meant to, that's like a proverb for snowing, like the first snow. Well, I just want you to know that if it snowed on the 11th of November here, I would have a fit. I mean, it's snowed in October by me before, so it's not that 11th of november is you know in snow range so no but th- this is a this is a pre-global warming proverb i think true true <laughs> i might die though i just want you to know i might die if it snows yeah. in november <laughs> all right so thanks brie for all of that knowledge <laughs> um now we're gonna get into to my research on remy and radigund um which is probably less thorough so feel free mm-hmm. to jump in if you think of anything else. St. Remy. So, St. Martin is like the apostle of the Gauls. Mm-hmm. But Remy, or Remigius, is the mm-hmm. apostle of the Franks. So, when the mm. Roman Empire falls and all that chaos is happening, Remy's there to be like, these pagan people coming in? <laughs> Just waving my magic wand? They're not pagans anymore. So, he was born around 437 and he lived to 533. So he lived for a long time. (laughs) Um, Mathematically, nineties. Oh, he was old. Yeah. Yeah. So for context, he's about twenty years older than Clovis, and he lives for another twenty years after Clovis dies. Uh Yeah, out of spite. (laughs) Maybe. Well, their relationship was not a not necessarily a spiteful one. There is one story where Clovis breaks Remy's vase. Um, Oh yeah. How and rude. Remy gets <laughs> Remy gets mad, and uh, Clovis has to punish the soldier who broke the vase and um and give it back to give back the shards of the vase to Remy. So yeah, so um he came from like similar to Martin, he came from like a privileged Roman family, um, and he lived up in uh, Picardy, which is on the border of where the Franks were, or the Salian Franks were. Um, with the Romans. So he knew about the Franks. He saw it coming, basically. He saw the Frankish invasion coming. Um, and he did and, nothing uh, to stop the Salic law? Oh, what a jerk. He did nothing to stop the Salic law. That is very true. Although they'd already had the Salic law for a while, so... Uh, <laughs> it's just, it was written under his watch, I guess, which is <laughs> improvement, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he... He was from this upper class family and they were all Christian already. So that was no problem. He could become a bishop. And there's a lot, actually a lot of nepotism in the Remy story. Like he's just here making his brothers bishops and stuff. And yeah. So uh, he became Bishop of Reims, which I hope I'm pronouncing right. Yeah. Because I've pronounced word. it a few times. <laughs> yeah. It looks like Reims or Reims, yeah. but it's Reims. <laughs> And uh, so that is a, a, it's a city in Champagne, 
and it becomes one of the most important churches in France where the kings are crowned for reasons that are related to Remy, I suppose. Um, So he became bishop at at 21, in case you weren't sure about how nepotistic his family was. And he wasn't even consecrated as a priest when he became bishop. So that's (laughs) a great, great start. Yeah, he was a full-on layperson. Yeah, and he entered our story in Clovis's episode, obviously, uh, when Mm -hmm. Clotilda, um, Clovis's wife, came over from Burgundy to marry Clovis, and she started sort of plotting with Remy to make everyone Christian. (laughs) They also had to make sure they converted them to the right Christianity as well, because Arianism was happening a lot with the (laughs) barbarians. I don't know if uh, Fry remembers, or Eliza remembers Arianism. Yeah, I do. But yeah, it was a big thing among the barbarians, and uh, Remy and Clotilda were concerned that the Franks might fall to it as well, so they had to get in there quick. So Remy uh, worked closely with his protege, St. Vedast, who's also known as St. Foster in English or St. Gaston in French. <laughs> no um, one converts like one Gaston. <laughs> no one preaches like Gaston, basically. <laughs> and he became the Bishop of Arras and Cambrai, which are bishops that Remy established. So he's going all over the place establishing bishoprics from where <laughs> people can preach to the Franks, basically. And meanwhile, Remy's brother, Principius, became Bishop of Soissons. So yeah, just keeping that all in the family. Is that his and, older uh, brother or his, his younger brother? Because naming one of the brothers number one is just so rude. Principius, yeah. I don't know, but I, um, I don't know what Remigius means, actually. I should have looked that up. Remigius is a usually, great name for a saint. Yeah, yeah. Because mm. we usually do etymologies for everyone, but... um. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> Gregory of Tours writes about Remy. Um, he calls him a, a man of excellent wisdom and especially trained in rhetorical studies uh, and of such surpassing holiness that he equaled the miracles of Sylvester. Oh, well. <laughs> so shot, shots fired at Pope Sylvester. Look, Pope <laughs> Sylvester killed a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Sort no, of. Remy doesn't kill Allegedly. Remy killed the metaphorical dragon of Frankish mm. paganism. Well, Fry still <laughs> contends that the dragon that Pope Sylvester killed was definitely a Komodo dragon, so maybe it's not so <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah, still decent. Gregory just goes on to offhandedly mention that Remy raised him out from the dead, as you do. Of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But not three. Um, not three. Only one. Hmm. Just one. Yeah, just one. Disappointing. Disappointing, yeah. <laughs> Could that man have been in a coma, though? Or was he dead dead? <laughs> yeah, how dead was the man? <laughs> the eternal question. Well, Gregory says that there's a book that says that he raised a man from the dead. So it must be right. <laughs> <laughs> he literally doesn't even cite his source. He just says, there is an extant book of his life which tells he raised a man from the dead. Thanks, oh, Greg. The end. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, even before Remy baptized him, Clovis supposedly gave him lots of privileges and benefits, probably because Clotilda wanted it and Clotilda was pretty. Um, (laughs) so he's like, whatever you want, fine. Stop pestering me. I'm just trying to fight these other people. Okay, dear. Yeah. And then the battle of Tolbiac happened, uh, between Clovis and the Alamanni, uh, which Mm. do you remember this in the Clovis episode, Eliza? Uh-huh. Uh, 
it was like his literal come to Jesus moment where yeah, the battle's not going the well. Field. <laughs> All raging around him. How Constantine. Yeah, exactly. It's very Constantine. Only, um, unlike Constantine, Clovis doesn't convert. He, he tells God he'll think about it. <laughs> um, no Jesus P for him. <laughs> no yeah. Jesus P. Yeah. Um, but then eventually uh, he, he got back home, basically. And it turned out all of his soldiers had been converted behind his back. Like, Amazing. Amazing. Remy and his wife had just been running around converting everyone while he wasn't looking. <laughs> and, you're converted. Um, you're converted. Yeah. Like, so he's like, take, he's like, I want to consult with my men before I convert to Christianity. Because, like, that might be suicide. So he just turns around. He's like, raise your hand if, if you want to convert to Christianity. And literally everybody, everyone raises their hand. <laughs> so, um. And he's yeah, like, so then, what? You're already Christian? Yeah, so then Gregory of Tours gets very excited in this chapter because we have a mass baptism on our hands. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just, yeah. Read, I'll just read this, this quote. So, um, the squares were shaded with tapestried canopies. The churches adorned with white curtains. The baptistry set in order. The aroma of incense spread. Candles of fragrant <laughs> odor burned brightly. And the whole shrine of the baptistry was filled with a divine fragrance. Then the Lord gave such grace to those who stood by that they thought they were placed amid the odors of paradise. Amazing. Now I want a, I want a perfume called Odors of Paradise. <laughs> They're Feels probably very astral, astral dew. <laughs> astral astral dew. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the king was the first to ask to be ba- baptized by the bishop. Another Frank advanced to the baptismal font to terminate the disease of ancient leprosy and wash it away with fresh water, the foul spots that had been there for oh, a long yeah, time. Oh yeah, just let the leper man in your, yeah. your thing first. Your baptism. Why go water? first? Yeah. Go at the end. Don't contaminate everyone else. <laughs> Why can't you go last, buddy? Well, Clovis got to go first, and then it was the leper man. And then the leper so. man <laughs> gave, everyone else lepro- got leprosy. Yes, gave yeah. leprosy to everybody else. Yeah. I'd be like, and, no, uh, you go last. Yeah. Yeah. But it's holy water. It, it can't be contaminated. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Are we sure? <laughs> Press X to doubt. Maybe be blessed enough. I have uh, holy water from Lourdes on my shelf. Maybe we should test this theory. I don't know <laughs> anyone with leprosy. Same. Mm. But yeah, so when he entered to be baptized, the, the saint of God, so Remy, began with a ready speech. He said, uh, gently bend your neck. Worship what you burned, burn what you worshipped. Which, that is a cool, that is a cool line. Yeah, but pagans seem so much more fun. (laughs) They are so much more fun. We've got a, we've got a quote from this, of the same scene from Jacobus de Virogeny. Um, He says, and when St. Remigius baptized him, Clovis, um, he had no chrism ready. Then a dove descended from heaven, (laughs) which brought the chrism in an ample, I don't know what an ample is. It's a little uh, bottle of oil. It's a bottle of oil. He, so wait, he brought the chrism in an ample. Isn't chrism oil? <laughs> yeah, it's I like don't a, know. Yeah, chrism is oil already, so it has to go in an oil bottle. So that makes sense. The ample is the oil bottle, yeah. Uh, wait, so is a chrism, chr- so chrism's not the garment? No, chrism is oil and I guess I balsam. <laughs> oh, I see. You you have a chrism so cloth confused. though that goes through baptism. So you That's put that right, on. I, I was it's your mirror. The cloth in in the bottle, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> 
Look, that could okay. be really cool, though. Maybe there is a cloth inside the bottle, and they've got to dig it out like clowns pulling <laughs> colors from their skin. Oh, I thought it was just going to be some sort of yield Maltov. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> the dove brings you um, a Maltov cocktail. The Disney dove. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, so um, apparently this ample is the one that was subsequently used to anoint all the kings of France. In the Cathedral of Rams. Do we still have it, or is it mysteriously banished? Oh, well. You always ask that, Eliza, and I, and I never have the answer. <laughs> I just want to know where it is. It's like the bees. I'll get yeah. find those bees one day. <laughs> well, we've got two bees. I want more. <laughs> Three you never have nuts. enough bees. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, back to the mass baptism. Apparently 3,000 men were baptized on that day. God, imagine how tired you'd be after doing all that baptizing. Oh, it'd be a long yeah, day. Yeah, a lot of a lot of flicking. You get a baptism. The arms would be so a- sore. Yeah. So, yeah, Remy is the Oprah of Frank- <laughs> Frankish conversion. Of baptism. Uh, yeah. And the church is, like, raking it in in this period. Like, everyone's, give- everyone's giving a donation with their baptism. Like, like yeah. Yeah. So to baptize 3,000 men in a day, you would have to baptize 125 men an hour. Damn. Okay, that's doable. It's like two a minute. You could do it. Yeah. Yeah. Be like, quick, 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 quick. (laughs) Run up. Splash. All day. Splash, splash, splash. Oil, water, go. Maybe he did throw a Molotov cocktail at them. Everyone's (laughs) baptized. Of holy water. You know, yeah. Molotov cocktails weren't even named after Molotov, Russia. Oh, oh yeah, I don't know. It's named after something to do in Spain. Sorry, that's my fun fact. <laughs> there's a scene. There's a scene in the Great where um they discuss. There's this guy who has a who who like accidentally lights alcohol on fire, mm-hmm. and they're like, "What's your name?" And he's like, "Molotov." <laughs> <laughs> well, they're incorrect. And then they use it as a weapon in the coup. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, this is the great. This is like an appendix. I know, it's so incorrect. <laughs> we, we literally just talked about the great on our, our last episode about the Pope Joan movie too, so. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's so good. Anyway, yeah. uh, back to the, the mass baptism. So, and yeah, so all of this wealth is coming into the church with everyone who's converting. And um, this, all of this wealth is just going to totally dry up by the time we get to our current time period because- of the Vikings, because they at one point raid the Church of Rance. And uh, mm. we're about to get to, in a couple episodes' time, we're about to get to an incident in which they raid Rance. And um, Remy, or at least his skeleton, um, has to be moved. Translating relics. <laughs> yeah, translating that relic. It eventually ends up back in Rance um, at the Abbey of St. Remy. But it flees. And the writer of the annals is the one taking the body away and is like uh, and then we had to flee oh so the skeleton itself didn't flee <laughs> no yeah this is the this was the bishop of rans who was riding the annals and he's like and then we had to flee to this place <laughs> and that's literally the last line in the annals <laughs> oh yes those yeah. are the best things about annals <laughs> we'll get to that in a couple episodes but yeah it's 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 great so uh yeah that's the life story of remy I tried to look up stuff he was the patron saint of, but it just says France. So <laughs> Yeah, so if, he, okay, if it weren't for St. Martin, he would be the patron saint of France because he's the first person who establishes Christianity with the Franks. So he is getting robbed 
by Saint yeah. Martin. <laughs> I, I guess you could say like Mon's the patron saint of like the Gauls, and Remy's the same patron saint of the Franks. Yeah, maybe you could say mm. that. Yeah, but he's totally been overshadowed, and it's totally unfair. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Martin was there first, so. Mm. He just needed he needed a hype man like Gregory of Tours. Yeah. He needed more stories about the devil chasing him around <laughs> yeah. and and lighting people's bums on fire. Yeah. Mm. There just need to be more fire. There was too much water in this story and not enough fire. Yeah. So now let's move on to Radagond. Saint Radagond. Uh so we can finally talk about <laughs> some women again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, although her life, just like the life of Petronilla, is just defined by the cruelty of men. Uh, mm. So she popped up in our Clothar the First episode, which was mm-hmm. episode two, um, because she was one of his wives. Yeah. Uh, one what of else? his many, many wives. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was born around 520. So towards the end of Remy's life, they, so they overlap slightly. Um, and a few years after... Clovis died. And as well as appearing in Gregory of Tours' account, she also has a lengthy Vita, which has two authors. Um, So there's a guy called Venantius Fortunatus, Hmm. um, in case you wanted a really Roman name. Um, (laughs) And the second part was written by a woman called Baudinivia. Baudinivia? Hmm. Baudinivia, yeah. And she was a nun at um, Radagon's convent. So she learned under Radagond um, and then wrote her life story. Yeah. I love this because I've been yelling, I think, for the last several months about women in religious housing being educated and being able to read and write. So this is beautiful. I love it. It's lovely that we finally have proof. Although I I couldn't actually find like a full transcript of Baudinivia's story, Mm. which was annoying. I could only find stuff about it. Um. So, you know, if anyone has a copy of that, that'd be great. I mean, mm. I'm not going to need it, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they, we get a very different picture of Radagon between these two authors and Gregory, because although they all supposedly knew her personally, uh, two of them were men and one of them was a woman. So you can imagine that, like, they come into it with different angles, you know. Mm. Um, the men are always like, oh, she did all this stuff despite being a woman. And, <laughs> oh. um Baudinivia is just like, yeah, she did all this stuff because she was a good person. Like, <laughs> So yeah, uh, Venantius Fortunatus opens up our story by saying that the blessed Radagond was of the highest earthly rank, born from the seed of kings in the barbarian nation of Thuringia. So we're starting mm. once again, not in France, in Germany. Mm. So she was a princess from Thuringia. She was a descendant of King Bessinus who was Clovis's grandfather, because his mother was a Thuringian. Um, so she was like a cousin of the Frankish royal family. And um, when she was young, the, the violence starts pretty quick because her uncle murders her father. Um, her uncle's Oops. a guy called Hermanfrid. Uh, that sounds like a murderer's name. Hermanfrid. It is a murderer's name. <laughs> so he killed her father in battle. Um, and then he kept her sort of essentially as like a prisoner at his court. So she's like, she's like Sansa Stark, basically. Um, uh. Just imprisoned. But like, you know, nicely imprisoned. Like she still gets a servant and stuff, but she's still a prisoner. Because she still gets an education and everything. And she, she, she's proved so that she's quite smart. an educated prisoner. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, a prisoner nonetheless. And uh, that's not going to end anytime soon. She's going to be a prisoner <laughs> to various different people. So Hermanfred defeated all of his brothers and he became king of all the Thuringians. Um, and he did this thanks to the help of his cousin Theodoric, who was the eldest son of Clovis. Uh, but we didn't do an episode on him because he wasn't king of all the Franks, which was our criteria for the Merovingians. Because otherwise we would have talked about way too many. <laughs> oh, gosh, would you ever? We would still be doing the Merovingians now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this alliance um, actually ended when Theodoric pushed Hermanfred off a wall, um, <laughs> according to Griffiths. Perfect. Um, yeah. So that's how you knew it was done. It'd be done. funny if it was a really, like, small wall that he fell off and still, like, died. He's just yeah, really offended like and walked away in a huff. He didn't actually die. He's just like, I can't believe you pushed me like that. Oh, yeah. this one meter high wall. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Hermanfred got um, Humpty dumpty And uh, this was part of <laughs> part of a series of conflicts um, between the Franks and the Of nursery rhymes. Oh, um, I'm, I'm about to get into some stuff that's really not nursery rhyme friendly, uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of violence, and Gregory only writes about the violence that the Thuringii did to the Franks, of course, but we can assume there was a lot on both sides. So at one point, the Thuringii took a bunch of Frankish maidens, and uh, they did uh, the horse thing with them, Eliza. Uh, yeah, the horse thing. Always <laughs> so interesting. They tied their limbs to horses. Mm, and yes. then they made the horses bolt. Yeah, yes. being quartered. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The end of Braveheart. And they did this with, they did this with a large number of Frankish girls. Mm. Oof. Yeah. They Terrible, also took, but yeah. interesting. They, In a morbid <laughs> way. Yeah. Well, it's just. Mm. Yeah. So this this happened to one of our queens, uh, Brunhilde. Um, happened to her. So, uh, the Thuringii also took a bunch of boys and hanged them by the sinews of their thighs. Um, That's so specific. Yeah. Others were stretched out on the streets and trampled by, like, um, carts and then thrown to the dogs and birds for food. Mm. Um, Just great times. Uh, I suppose they're using every part of the body by giving it to animals. (laughs) Instead of just killing it and putting it in a grave. Yeah, I don't know. So yeah, Radagon's living through this horrible war, and um, she ev- she eventually gets captured by Theodoric's younger brother Clothar the First, who's our second episode. So we covered what he was doing with Theodoric in the war a little bit. There was a, there was one point where they were fighting over a dish. Do you remember that, Eliza? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of like hijinks, but one of the hijinks was they were fighting over who got to take this princess prisoner. Ah, because um, she's property, like a dish. Yeah, exactly. And um, apparently, there's there's some accounts that say this led to Clothar murdering Theodoric, although I'm not sure if the timeline really lines up there. But let's just say he did. And so Clothar took Radagund back to France, uh, what became France, I guess, uh, as his prisoner. And yeah, I think it's safe to, con- to assume this wasn't like a star-crossed lover's situation this was definitely a a a prisoner situation so i hope there's not a movie one day in the future that just fully romanticizes this <laughs> don't you just hate that? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> yes so true so radagund joined a cavalcade of at least six wives 
some of whom Clothar must have taken simultaneously. Because hmm. they're still they're still kind of pagan. Yeah. There's certain habits they haven't got over. Um, but the whole time, apparently, Radagon managed to resist Clothar's advances. Because, of course, she can't be a saint if she lost her virginity. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, so she, she also ate very little. And she got given all these great banquets, but she always, like, gave the food away to the poor. Um, what, and just ate bread and water? Yeah, well, she was a vegetarian, and this became even more extreme in Lent, where she also gave up bread, oil, salt, and cut back on water. God, what did she eat, Air, Air, yeah. Um, Prepping for a fitness competition, by the sounds of it. Yeah. <laughs> she she was like a breath what are they called? Breath Aryans? Breath Aryans? Yeah. <laughs> just, it's this weird new I culty thing. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're like, we can survive on air and people have literally starved to death following this weird new agey practice. Mm-hmm. Um Well yeah. they're stupid enough to do that. Yeah. So um according to Venantius, who Venantius gets really into like the masochistic stuff. Of Radagund denying her body any any iota of pleasure, pleasure. and causing oh. pain to herself constantly. Bad video doesn't. Bad video focuses more on like her educating women <laughs> and like actually using her queenly power to like do good things. But uh, Venantius says uh, at night when she lay with her prince, she would ask uh, leave to rise and uh, leave the chamber to relieve nature. Then she would prostrate herself in prayer under a hair cloak. There's a there's a hair shirt there, penitential oh. mm-hmm. garb. Yeah, Gotta have uh, it. by the privy. So she's squatting down by the toilet um, so long that the cold pierced her through and through, and only her spirit was warm. Her whole flesh prematurely dead, indifferent to her body's torment, she kept her mind intent on paradise. And counted her suffering trivial, if only she might have avoid becoming cheap in Christ's eyes. Cheap in Christ's eyes. Let's wow. ask her to project so I don't have to have sex. So gross. <laughs> um, so we're all cheap in his eyes now. Yep. Yeah. Uh, re-entering the chamber thereafter, she could scarcely get warm either by the hearth or in her bed. Because of this, people said the king had yoked himself to a nun rather than a queen. Probably touched her. I was like, oh, too cold. Yeah. Her goodness provoked him to harsher irritation, but she either soothed him to the best of her ability or bore her husband's brawling modestly. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I don't like this at all. <laughs> mm, it's not classic, great. though. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah, as I said, Baudovina sort of contradicts this by, you know... Saying she did, you know, present herself as a queen. She did act as a queen because that's how she was able to help people, basically. Like, if she was constantly being penitent all the time, like, how is she going to have time or energy or, you know, money to give to all these monasteries that she was also giving to? Um, And use your status for leverage. Yeah. So, uh, Clothar kind of overstepped the line with Radagon when he murdered one of her brothers. Uh... (laughs) I mean, fair. And Rad- yeah, and Radagon. Yeah, at I think this- I'd be a bit upset. Yeah, at this point, Radagon decides maybe this isn't a safe situation for me. So she remo- <laughs> she removes herself from the situation. She goes and takes sanctuary. 
um, <laughs> with uh, Saint uh, Saint Medard, Saint Medardus, whose church becomes important later on. Um, so she fle- she flees to his church at Noyon, um, and he was like so impressed by how pious and penitent she was that he made her a deaconess, which you don't see very mm. often because a deacon's kind of a deacon's kind of like a lay priest almost, right? Yeah, yeah, and you don't see a lot of deaconesses, but yeah. Not in this time, um, that's for sure. No, no. Mm. And um, in return, she gave all of her remaining jewels and fine clothes to the church, because of course. Of c- um, yeah, of course. Yeah. And uh, then, uh, fearing uh, the wrath of God, uh, Clothar kind of let her, just let her be. Um, <laughs> and, uh, right. yeah, by the year 560, so like 10 years later, she'd founded a monastery in Poitiers called the Abbey de Saint-Croix, so the Abbey of the Holy Cross. Um, and there she just chilled and taught people and healed. She had magical <laughs> healing powers as well, obviously. Of course. Um, yeah. And so Gregory of Tours says uh, she turned to God, changing her garments, because, of course, the garments. Everyone's obsessed with her clothes. Um, <laughs> she was a queen, of course. <laughs> She's a woman. We must criticize her clothes. Who are you wearing? <laughs> Who are you wearing? Exactly. Um, and she built a monastery for herself in the city of Poitiers, we've said that, um, and becoming remarkable for prayer, fasting, and charity, she attained such fame that she was considered great by the people. Um, yeah. And she does, she pops up briefly again in Gregory before her death. She's encouraging one of the young nuns at the Abbey of Poitiers to become an anchorite. Mm, uh, we love an anchorite. Really, yeah, anchorites <laughs> are really interesting. Um, they were basically people who like shut themselves up in like a little house, which had like no doors or windows. Yeah. And it was usually in like a graveyard or something. So they were like between the living and the dead, basically. And it's just like the height of. So were I they guess, like buried alive? Kind well, they of, had. But they was. Yeah, they have a little like window to get food and for people to come and yeah. pray for them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so they're like a hermit. Extreme hermit. Yeah. Extreme. But people would come to them and like ask them for miracles and, and yeah. you know. They're like Imagine ordering DoorDash and they're mm. like, hey, could you could you pray for me? Could you give me a miracle? <laughs> I don't yeah, need a yeah. tip. Maybe, like food first. That's yeah. that's the, the crux of, of Anchorites. They become so famous for their holiness that their sites become very, very popular and they have too many visitors and it really irritates some of the Anchorites. Like we had a, we had an Anchorite Pope. To less for us, and uh, yeah. he he's too many people came to visit him, so he's like, "Why am I doing this? I guess I should just join the world." <laughs> so yeah, so so when when Radagant um, grants this nun her anchorage, uh, she gets all the nuns. Uh, I'll just read Gregory of Tours. The nuns gathered with loud psalm giving, and the lamps were lighted, and she was conducted to the place. The blessed Radagant holding her hand. And uh, so she said farewell to all and kissed each one and became a recluse. And the entrance by which she went in was walled up and she was there now spending her time in prayer and reading. So Radagon's like, I'll make sure you have books, you know. I support you. Get in the hut. (laughs) No, get in the hut. (laughs) But this was her choice. The nun had had like a vision where she was like, I I think I want to become an anchorite. And Radagon was like, I support you and your choices. (laughs) <laughs> if you lived in the sixth century, being walled up to be able to read all day as a woman yeah. would probably sounds be a great. great choice. There are a lot <laughs> of yeah. great now. 
Yeah. Even nowadays. It sounds great then. Like, there are all of these barbarians running around everywhere. Uh, and Radagon's probably like, this. that sounds like a great deal. Because I've just been thrown with- around by men my whole life. The problem with that is that when when the wars happen and they troop on in, they, t- they tend to set anchorages on fire. And because oh. they're made out of stone, generally. They- oh, no. So okay, like I, ta- I take back everything I just said. <laughs> I mean, it's, if they weren't setting it on fire, it would have been a safer place. But, but hey, it'd be great. Also, like, what if everyone in the village has to, like, flee because there's an invasion or something? They just leave you there. You're just generally supposed to stay. So oh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a life. Just stay really quiet. Hope no one notices that you've been there the whole time. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, um, Radagon lived to the year 587. So she was 57 when she died. She's not bad. Yeah, um, not as good as Remy, but, you know, <laughs> no one's as good as Remy with the whole longevity thing. But, yeah, her, her life is sort of used as a, a parable of, like, misfortune leading to salvation because she's born into privilege and then all this horrible stuff happens to her. But then through God, she's able to survive and, and thrive. How Pope yeah. Joan of her. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in her depiction, she's always depicted as a queen with all of these like jewels and everything, even though that's supposedly not how she lived because she's, she gets to be a queen now that she's in heaven. <laughs> Appropriate. Um. Yeah. So her her saint cult spreads like throughout Europe. She's not just in France. Um, so I think uh, Jesus College in Cambridge has her as their patron saint. And there's also lots of churches in Germany and Austria dedicated to her. Hmm. I love when you're so, a saint yeah. and you only have like a one specific building that you're the patron saint of, where some people get like all of France. You're yeah, saying, yeah. Like, this college. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So so Radagon's pretty much the go-to saint for like nuns in France. I think. Yeah. I, I love her already. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there are probably other saints that we could mention and go into. There's a lot of patron saints in France. Oh, so, um, many. so many, and we haven't even touched on the Breton saints. <laughs> Why were there so many Breton saints? Look, it was a I very wanted, just a popular place to be saint. <laughs> yeah, but also, um, I mean, people getting saints seems to have really declined in the in just the time that we've covered. Like, I think Eliza said this a couple episodes ago. It's like it, there used to be a saint, like every fifth person was a saint, and now it's you don't. We're not hearing about them mm. as much anymore. Well, it's like nowadays you don't hear much as about people being saints. Well, you will no, again no. when you get into like the ninth. In the 8th, 9th, and 10th century, you're going to start seeing a lot more saints again, so. Okay, so look forward to that. Some people <laughs> just feel like Middle handing ages. out the patron sainthoods, and sometimes they just don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Eliza, did you want to talk about St. Ulfia? Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> I love St. No, we, we, we <laughs> yeah, want to hear about St. Ulfia. Okay, well... <laughs> we have St. Ophia, who was born in the 8th century AD. And what I love about her is that she was the patron saint of, like, amphibians, so frogs. So many frogs. That's literally the only reason I chose her, because I was like, oh, a saint of frogs. <laughs> frog saint. It's, I, I love that the patron saint of frogs is a French saint. Do you know why <laughs> she's the patron saint of frogs? Yeah. <laughs> they actually have a few different, like, legends surrounding why she is, like, the saint of frogs so there's this one where 
where she was in her hermitage because she was like a hermit. She, um, they were croaking really loud, so keeping her up at night. And then she was like, stop. And then they kind of just went, oh, okay. <laughs> and then another version <laughs> is that basically these men were chasing after this like group of frogs being like, you were possessed. Yeah. And that's why you're interrupting my prayer time. Yeah. And so then she was like to the frogs, okay, quickly hide under my dress and my robes. (laughs) And they just hid under her robes and clung to her legs and she just walked by the men being like, la-di-da-di-da. There's no frogs. I don't know which way they went. So she's just like a druid. Yeah. Yeah. And then she kept the (laughs) frogs at her hermitage and she would, because they were loud at night, she would just meditate with them all night until she understood the song of the frog. Yeah, she said she could understand them and some like scientific experiment apparently in the 19th century (laughs) records that the frogs in the area around where she lived were very quiet, but if moved they become very loud. (laughs) Always trust a 19th century science experiment. Yeah. (laughs) So she's always depicted like on a rock praying with like a frog with her. Yeah. Which I just love. She might have also written this very weird story called The Frog's Ballad. Oh, Mm. yeah. But they're not sure. They're like, she might have written it in her personal Bible, but uh, we don't quite know. And then the, like, (laughs) church is going, it is all lies and wives tales. Burn it. Yeah, they burned almost all of the copies of it. Yeah, (laughs) but we're going to pretend that it was real and she totally could talk to the frogs. (laughs) <laughs> there is some there is some uh recorded copies of the story. It is is wild and long, but there is a mm. the recorded one online. You could put it in your show notes. Strange yeah. there's giraffes and such <laughs> involved in the story, so <laughs> Yeah, and there's also another story to do her being like kinda in a relationship with another saint, but Ooh. not like a love re- kind of a love relationship and uh, not. A, it's a really weird. <clears throat> There are yeah, a lot of basically, those. Yeah. Yeah. But I like how she organized because all these like people started like also like building hermitages near her. And so she just organized all those women into like a little religious community. So like, yeah. good on you. Nice. Yeah. Amazing. I want to go live in the frog swamp. Oh. Yeah, I know. I want to too. Just live there, have all the frogs. I just love how kind of like secretly feminist. All of the nuns are in the Middle Ages. <laughs> yes! Yeah. Yeah. They're just, yeah. like, creating these little communities where women just help each other out. It's great. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and her um, feast day is on the day she died, which is January the 31st. Yes, they love nice. to put So if anyone days. born on that day, you share a feast day. Well, hopefully not. You don't want to share a feast day because that's the day you die. It's when your soul ascends yeah, to heaven. Yeah, but you get to share it with frogs. Well, that's true. But if you're born on a feast day, isn't that good? That would be good. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. You get to celebrate frogs and your birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking <laughs> of female saints, we haven't talked about the elephant in the room, which is Joan of Arc, <laughs> uh, the the other patron saint of France, because she's a bit later. And um, yeah, we're not there. And there, yet. Are, there are a couple. She others. deserves an episode in herself. Yeah, she's getting her own episode. We're definitely doing that she's going to be eligible to be watching our tournament in the audience for our tournament Mm. which is what we do yeah when there's someone we really want to review but they aren't the king they're not like a ruler 
Yeah, King. we'll we'll do a we'll do a point five episode, which we just did with Robert the Strong. Yeah, and, and decide- we decide whether they should be in VIP box, common seating, or like the nosebleed. I love yeah, it. Yeah, we, we we introduced a new category with Robert the Strong, which was like he's not good enough to be in the VIP box, mm-hmm. but he's not con- he's not bad enough to be in the nosebleed section. So we're like, we can do an in between, <laughs> just in a regular seating, common seating. We we just had to do that too because we had a um, this. This isn't out yet, but we have a pope who is sometimes called the great and sometimes not. And oh. <laughs> so Fry decided he gets to instead. Be like the middle seat of the theater. Yeah, he gets to be Nicholas the Deluxe instead of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did we call it? We okay? We have the the economy plus seating. Um, yeah, economy plus seating is our middle seat. Yeah, yep. yep. amazing. That was we've just introduced that, but anyway. Um, this was very exciting. I'm so happy we, f- yeah. we finally got to do this. Thank you um, so much for having us. Uh-huh. Oh, it was such a pleasure to have you. Um, yeah. I mean, Brie, I feel like you did most of the work on this <laughs> book. <laughs> and I was Brie like, always oh, does most of the, the work. That's just how <laughs> Brie is. <laughs> Brie overprepares. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, I've I've had the most hectic week, so I like I severely underprepared. But um, it was great to have you to pick up some of the slack. And you guys are welcome back anytime. Well, I um, loved learning about Remy and Radigan, so I think you did yeah. fantastic. And I think we definitely have to collaborate when we get to Pope Joan. So or uh, the yeah. Joan of Arc, the brain, yeah, <laughs> the I other Joan. If she was the Pope, <laughs> things might have turned out different. Oh, man, that would have been so much better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe in an alternative dimension, all the Popes are women. Yeah. Oh, I feel like that's we got to do something with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> One of our uh, D&D campaigns or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, we actually had, so, so we also play D&D. We had a campaign yeah. where the 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 villainous clergy was like an all female clergy, amazing, um, yeah. And they were evil, but they were also kind of awesome at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And I got to be rule over a kingdom. The whole party uh, bl- basically blew up the, the world's version of the Vatican. Oh, amazing! Cool. Um, <laughs> With it, like it a black a, hole. It was oh. an accident. It was an accident, but also they didn't stop it. So they just yeah, we just sort of kept growing and we fleed. <laughs> well, that's the natural thing to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a black hole. Run away. Yeah, we have we have one that we're going to run at some point around Easter, and it's it's basically the crucifixion as as a heist campaign. Yeah, oh, so we didn't get to do that the this year or last year. Yeah. Oh, I loved your yeah. episode that you did. I think with the Totalis ranking guys and, and a couple other people. Yeah, the Pope kidnapping episode. I loved that so much. I was so <laughs> pleased with the way that turned out. Wasn't that your first time DMing? Me? No. I, I DM I all the time. I DMs a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was definitely the first time that Ari had played D&D because she usually plays like Numenera. And oh, it was yeah. the first time ever for Rob and Jamie. Rob and Jamie, yeah, at yeah. all. So they they were really they've never done D and D. No, at none at all. Gosh, they think quickly on their feet. Though. Oh, they like, did they great. Are just, they are improv geniuses. I feel like I just let things oh, when happen. I'm playing it, I just like turn on my dark side. <laughs> yeah, 
and become like evil the, and mean. The, I'm I'm just going to start gushing about Tatiana's Frankie now, but the, <laughs> the way they, like, just come up with running jokes on their podcast, like, so effortlessly, and they're, like, so funny all the time. They are. I just, I bow down. Oh, anyway. we had fun with them recently. <laughs> we went on their show. Yeah, we did uh, How yeah. Well Do You Know Your Co-Host. and um, But we, we competed because normally it's just them grilling the other hosts about things. And so I wrote questions for them as well. And we kicked our asses. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, was great. All right. So I guess we'll do, I guess we'll do our outro now. So usually I say au revoir for me. And then Eliza says, and goodbye from me. Um, so we could do au revoir from me, and goodbye from me, and goodbye from me, and goodbye from me. <laughs> okay. Love it. If we want to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So that's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye. Mouse. Okay. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Did we all clap? It yeah, doesn't come clap. through. I clapped. I believe that you all clapped. I believe that you didn't all <laughs> clap 12 times in a row like someone I know. <laughs> That's super not helpful. Oh, God, Julia, stop doing that. <laughs> when we recorded with Totalis Rankium, uh, Jamie has a system where we all just say the word banana <laughs> as English as possible. <laughs> <laughs> And it couldn't oh, be banana, good. it had to be banana. Banana. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to have a um, hard time editing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's oh, this is going to be fun behind. to edit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think this episode is going to, like, challenge my editing skills to the limit, <laughs> which is good. I need, a, I need a bit of a challenge. Because the app we use just makes it so easy. Yeah. Mm. I, don't actually have ed- I don't actually have editing skills um, I just pay. I just pay four hundred dollars a year. Oh, that's so much money. <laughs> it's it's very well. It's Australian dollars. Ah, uh, yes, Australian that's worth less like, than Canadian that's... dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's more like two hundred US dollars or yeah, something. But, roughly. Yeah. yeah. That's, if it makes um, you feel better, I have no editing skills as well because <laughs> Fry has to do it. I don't. I don't even so know what I'm doing do it at all. <laughs> People ask me what I'm doing, and I'm like, pressing buttons. <laughs> I just get to sit back and relax. Eliza well, jumps <laughs> on, makes jokes, and then goes and lives her life. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, that was the deal when we I signed up to this. Ben was like, that, I'll do it all. That was the deal, chat, yeah. Basically, so I was yeah. like, okay, I'll take that. <laughs>